I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 20th, 2016. Coming up, interviews with two local scientists who study different aspects of climate change and their ideas on the future of this research. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In 1995, a terrifying thriller called The Hot Zone was published embellishing the possibility of escape of a deadly virus from government labs. 20 years later, truth echoed fiction as Ebola emerged from the African rainforest killing thousands. No one knows why these tropical diseases emerge when they do. One explanation is that deforestation impacts both animal and plant species, the observable species, but also microbes in the ecosystem. An international team of scientists investigated this hypothesis using Mycobacterium ulcera, a bacterium related to the tuberculosis pathogen called Mycobacterium ulcera. And this particular bacterium that they were investigating causes a disease called Beruli ulcer, a debilitating soft tissue infection that can lead to permanent disfigurement and disability. Beruli has become the third most common mycobacterial disease worldwide. Many of the 250 identified emerging diseases are caused by microorganisms with broad host ranges, that is, the capacity to infect many different species. And many of these pathogens are native to freshwater aquatic systems. When neighboring forests are disturbed, streams and ponds can carry these bacteria to new human hosts. In undisturbed habitat, Mycobacterium ulcer was found in a variety of invertebrate and vertebrate species, but increasing disturbance in the forest reduced the availability of the normal hosts and increased the infection rate in humans. Thus, it seems there could be more emerging diseases waiting to come out. This study was published last week in the journal Science Advances. On the science calendar, there are plenty of science-rich activities you can take the family to over the holidays. Check out the Denver Museum of Nature and Science exhibition called Mummies, Secrets from the Tomb. Get a rare look at mummies from ancient Egypt and Peru, many on public display for the first time. The exhibit runs through February 5th. For information on tickets, go to www.dmns.org. And in Boulder, check out the Fisk Planetarium at the University of Colorado Boulder. A show designed for the winter holidays is called Season of Light. It explores the reasons humans are so fascinated with lighting up our lives during the December holiday season. It explores the astronomical meanings behind seasonal traditions, including the star over Bethlehem. St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, Kris Kringle, Father Christmas, and Santa Claus will all drop by as well. For more information, go to www.colorado.edu slash FISC. That's F-I-S-K-E. Finally, no doubt you've heard or even directly experienced that science is under attack. Climate science and the scientists who conduct it are feeling especially vulnerable to these attacks. The pressure is increasing under the authority of the Trump transition team. For instance, as we featured on last week's show, the Trump team recently sent a questionnaire to the Department of Energy requesting names of scientists and contractors who have been involved in climate meetings during the Obama administration. 
Here's where you, science-loving listeners, can get involved. About 300 Earth scientists have crafted a petition aimed at the American Geophysical Union. It's the largest association of Earth scientists, and it holds a huge annual conference for AGNU, for AGU, sorry, to stop accepting sponsorship funding from ExxonMobil because the company disseminates disinformation about climate change. You can read and sign the petition by going to the website, climatetruth.org. Click on Campaigns, and you'll see the Stand Up for Science petition. We'll post the link on our website this week. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Joni Klepas is a marine ecologist who investigates the effects of atmospheric carbon dioxide on marine ecosystems, particularly coral reefs. She was one of the first scientists to describe the impact of CO2 on coral in 1998. She has served on many national and international committees to help define and tackle the problem and has testified multiple times to the U.S. Congress on the topic of marine ecosystems and climate change. She's a self-described optimist who is committed to finding solutions to the coral reef crisis. Welcome to the program, Joni. Hi, Beth. Thanks for asking me to be here. Delighted to talk to you. Why don't you start off by telling us what kinds of things you do, like recently when you went to, Co- to Costa Rica for your rough job and explored coral reefs there? Oh, that's a, just a part of the work that I'm doing. Uh, most of the work I do at NCAR has to do with modeling and trying to uh, use those models to find solutions of how we can protect uh, coral reefs into the future and protect them against uh, the impacts of climate change. But the the work in Costa Rica was was really um, a stem of my optimistic uh, approach to these things. I really uh, wanted to illustrate that there are things we can do to help coral reefs. And basically I was working with some students to just establish some underwater coral nurseries and grow corals so that we can plant them back on parts of the reef that have been, um, you know, damaged by climate change. So to start off, what is it about carbon dioxide in ocean water that damages the reefs? Well, there's two major impacts that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere causes. The first one is just is basically global warming. So the oceans are warming just as the atmosphere is warming, and that's causing the temperatures to go up beyond the natural thresh—you know, the natural threshold of corals—and it it causes them um, a lot of heat stress, uh, and it can kill a lot of corals when the heat waves—you know, the heat waves in the ocean are strong enough. Okay. The second thing, yeah, the second part is a chemical uh, impact, and that is the fact that the Oceans absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It forms carbonic acid, and it changes the chemistry of the oceans. Uh, basically, it lowers the pH. We call it ocean acidification. And it makes it harder for the corals to grow, and it causes the reefs themselves to degrade more rapidly. But you've been able to uh, discover and implement some strategies to not only protect, but refurbish the reefs. 
Well, I hope so. There's a, <laughs> there's a nice push amongst the, a lot of the coral reef research community uh, to go beyond just, just what we have been doing. Uh, normally in the past what we've been doing is basically creating marine protected areas, and what that does is it, it reduces the impacts of pollution and overfishing mainly on coral reefs, and it, it allows them to, to come back faster after they've been hit, or it just prevents them from being degraded. But this is a more active approach. There's, there's several ways that people are using more active approaches, and one of them is, is basically underwater gardening, growing uh, corals and replanting them in various parts of the reef to, to basically enhance the speed at which coral reefs can naturally recover. Uh, and so that's that's part of the work I'm I'm doing, and um, there are a lot of extensions for that. People are working with corals to try to grow corals that are more resilient to climate change and ocean acidification. Um, it there there are quite a quite a few tactics right now. Most people are working on on on. Uh, overcoming the barriers to uh, growing corals underwater. Yeah, I recall from reading that corals are really slow growers. So is it possible to speed that up somehow, put them on steroids or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you you can actually, um, you know, the main issue is to grow corals, uh, not necessarily to have the corals themselves grow faster, because, yes, they do grow slowly, Typically, when you put a coral fragment in a nursery, whether the nursery is on land in a lab or whether it's underwater, uh, they can grow a little bit faster, but typically, typically they grow about, um, you know, after about six months, you can grow them to a size where you can plant them back out on the reef. So it's, a, it's about like growing plants in a nursery. It's very similar to reforestation. Um, but the the whole emphasis is to grow enough of these corals and, and fast enough um, so that you can go to an area and plant them the same way we do with trees on land to, to basically just enhance that recovery because it's, if we wait for natural processes to operate, then it is quite slow in terms of the entire reef uh, recovering from a from a mortality event. Sure. And once the reef structure is there, which is actually a non-living structure, it can be repopulated with these seedlings, as it were? It can. Uh, not always. If you have a lot of problems with pollution um, or other factors that allow some of the soft algae to grow, that can prevent the corals from coming back. But in many areas, you can. you can. You can basically go to an area where the corals have died, and you can plant them or replant them. You can even grow the coral pieces of the surviving colony back onto the original coral. It, and it's amazing how quickly some of these corals can recover when you, you put these coral, small coral fragments and spread them out over the area. It's... it's um, the techniques are getting better and better, and they're growing faster and faster. Well, that is really good news. Is it possible, like in plant growers, to select for more rapid growing or even even strains of coral that are resistant to higher temperatures and acidity? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's a big emphasis of the research right now, and that's one of the reasons to do the work uh, in these coral nurseries because it, it provides a natural laboratory for doing that. 
So, for example, when we went to Costa Rica this year to do this work, there was a big bleaching event going on, and there was uh, quite a bit of coral mortality. But after the bleaching event was over, there were surviving colonies, and those surviving colonies were the ones that we used to take the fragments and grow them in the nurseries. And so we allowed natural selection to tell us which of these corals were better suited for handling heat stress. I see. Well, that's really good news. I hadn't realized that. Is the is there funding for this kind of work, or are you kind of scrounging for support to do it? <laughs> well, so far, uh, we're scrounging, but it is uh, it's a nice turn against the sort of research that we've been doing for years, which which I call documenting the, the demise of coral reefs. This is this is research which shows that yes, we can at least in in certain parts of um, our reef areas, we can bring the corals back. And so with that optimism, it's amazing the, the um, people that would like to fund these kinds of uh, research ventures or these activities. And so it's, it, it's a natural way to attract funding to do that work. But so far, a lot of it is kind of scrounging. (laughs) (laughs) So would you say it's true that there's fairly widespread recognition that this is um, a really significant problem and that we need to jump on it right now like you're doing? There is widespread recognition that this is a significant problem. And it was was really stamped again this year by... um, the widespread coral mortality associated with the El Nino event of 2016, 2015 and 2016. And um, people, I think, have become keenly aware of, of the fact that coral reefs are being hit by climate change. The, the Great Barrier Reef just got a huge hit from coral bleaching this year. The n- northern third of the reef suffered between a third and two-thirds of its corals uh, having uh, died from the bleaching event. And so it was, it, it's pretty, pretty remarkable how strong these events are becoming and how much coral mortality is occurring. So there is widespread recognition that this is a problem. On the one hand, people, uh, you know, you want people to be aware that how serious this problem is. But if, if we say, you know, too much doomsday, if we associate it with doomsday, and I, I don't agree that it's, uh, doomsday. People will actually turn off and not even want to step in and, and protect the reefs anymore. But actually, there's, there's a lot we can do. Uh, we, you know, we don't have limitless amount of time to protect the reefs, but I think with a lot of these innovations like underwater nurseries and genetic um, selection and other ways that we can improve, um, you know, the resilience of these corals and reefs to climate change. I think there's a lot we can do until we get our act together on fossil fuels. I think that's such an excellent point, Joni, that we need a little bit of optimism. Sure, this is bad news with climate change, but there are things that we can do. And it's so fantastic to hear that, yes, you are doing some of these things and seeing really positive results. So I want to thank you so much for sharing that good news with us. Beth, thanks for the opportunity. I think we all need a bit of optimism right now, so I'm happy to share. (laughs) I agree. Thanks. Well, I hope we can talk to you again about this. Thank you, Beth. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Dr. Joni Klepas of NOAA here in Boulder talking about the effects of rising carbon dioxide levels on coral reef ecosystems and what the future of these important marine ecosystems will be. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Peter Tons. He first became interested in mankind's influence on climate in 1972. Since 1985, he's led the Carbon Cycle Greenhouse Gases Group at NOAA here in Boulder. He discovered the existence of a very large sink, that is an uptake, of CO2 by terrestrial ecosystems at the mid-latitudes in the northern hemisphere, partially offsetting the emissions caused by the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas. Over four decades, the Carbon Cycle Group has produced the most widely used data on atmospheric CO2, methane, and other greenhouse gases. Welcome to the show, Peter. Let's start off by um, giving the listeners a little background in terms of the work you've done on climate change, which was probably called greenhouse or global warming when you started. I've been at this for a long time. And so you've always been working with CO2 measurements. Well, also other greenhouse gases. But okay, okay. CO2 definitely had the largest share of my attention. Sure. Well, let's focus on CO2 for that reason. Yeah. So actually, I first learned a long time ago, when I was still a student back in the Netherlands, about climate change caused by human beings. And it caused me, I read a little book that I found in a bookstore, and it was called Impact of Mankind on the Earth Climate. And I thought, that is such nonsense. How can that be? But uh, I was curious, so I took it from the shelf, and I saw for the first time the increase of CO2 every year. It was higher. So the first 10 years of the so-called Keeling curve that started in 1958, and every year it was higher. And it was clear that that was coming from fossil fuel burning. Okay, can I just stop you for a second here? Because, you know, so many climate deniers say there is no link between human activities and CO2 levels. What can we say to, well, I don't know if we can actually convince them, but what would a a logical argument to deter them be? There's so many lines of evidence that's proving that that statement would be wrong, that CO2 emissions, CO2 increase has nothing to do with human activities. First, so we register the rate of the increase in the atmosphere, and we compare that with uh, measurements in ice cores over the last 800,000 years, and CO2 is very anomalously high, and it happened right at, in the last century, and, and of course, it's still ongoing. Secondly, we can look also at the rate at which CO2 changed its Changed, changed by natural means in the past. So we look at that same ice core record and we look at the transitions between glacial periods and interglacial warm periods. And a typical rate of change is, uh, you know, one or two or f- let's say 10 ppm per thousand years. Whereas today we have two ppm or more than that in one year. So currently the rate of increase is, I would say, at least 200 times higher than it has ever been in the last 800,000 years. And has that rate increased substantially in the last 20 years? And the reason I'm asking that is because, Yeah. yeah, when I first started teaching my environmental students about 
what we call global warming, you know, 20, 25 years ago, the models all predicted a really slow rate of increase. And it seems like that rate of increase in the models has accelerated a lot. And so I'm just wondering if it's the models improving or CO2 levels increasing, maybe both? Well, you know, I, I don't pay too much attention to models, actually, okay. to tell you the truth. I, I, ju- I just look at what is happening, and, and certainly in terms of what's happening to greenhouse gases, we are measuring that very, very carefully. All of our measurements are super high-quality controlled uh, with reference gas standards, and so the instruments are continually calibrated. So we really know that the CO2 and the other greenhouse gases are increasing to a great level of accuracy. And it has accelerated, this rate of increase. And it has accelerated in parallel with the rate of global CO2 production from fossil fuel burning. Uh, They go together. Now, you could say uh, so-called climate skeptics, they might say, oh, no, no, it's coming out of the ocean. We can actually see in the atmospheric data that cannot be true. And that doesn't actually depend directly on the CO2 measurements, but on some other property that we're measuring in the CO2 increase. So we're measuring what's called isotopic ratios, the ratio of C13 to C12. And so there's different kinds of carbon. 99% of this is carbon-12, and roughly 1% is carbon-13. And we also have radioactive carbon, carbon carbon-14, which is made from nitrogen in the upper atmosphere by cosmic rays. But it has a lifetime, you know, decays with a half-life of five and a half thousand years. Now, we look at the isotopic ratios, both C13 and C14 in the atmosphere and how they behaved, over the last, say, 100 years. And we can say without a doubt that the source of the extra CO2 that we're seeing, of the increase, is of an organic nature, and it is very old. It cannot be from the oceans, and it cannot be from volcanoes. The isotopic ratios that we observe would have been very different from what we observe. So we have this... So, So now we know it's very old, and it's of organic nature. Well, there is one actually large reservoir of carbon that corresponds to that, and that is fossil fuels. It used to be organic matter, and now it's coal or oil or gas. And it took place, you know, over a couple million years, uh, maybe 10 to 100 million years ago. So we can prove what the cause is by yeah. the atmospheric data. Yeah, you have the smoking gun for yes. fossil fuels. So, yes. So now we're, you have definite proof and what's to be done about it? What I mean, there's there's so many carbon mitigation ideas being thrown out. I mean, the city of Boulder, for one, has these great ideas. But what can we do, really, as individuals and as a society to mitigate this? Uh, the, the problem with some of the greenhouse gases that are very long-lived, but especially with CO2, is that it is very long-lived. So the CO2 that we're emitting does not disappear from the ocean atmosphere system for thousands of years. So in other words, the effect on climate change is proportional to cumulative emissions. Everything we've burned since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Which means that if we want to combat climate change seriously, we have to bring emissions of CO2 down rapidly and they have to go to zero. Non-zero emissions are still adding to this cumulative effect. So they have to go to zero. Uh, That's the task we have. And it's also also the main item on the agenda. 
because if we don't do it, we can, you know, we can try to mitigate methane and nitrous oxide and a lot of other things if we think that CO2 is too difficult, but that doesn't really help. CO2 is the main culprit and it has to be included in any mitigation strategy. Okay, and I know you've done a lot of work on carbon sinks. Can we yeah. plant trees and, and do anything else to create carbon it, sinks? It, it helps. Yeah, it helps. Uh, but I'd say, but it helps only a little bit, okay. unfortunately. Okay. Because the amount we are emitting is so gigantic uh, that I see. planting a lot of trees is helping some, but not much. I see. So I don't want to discourage people, though, from trying to do something serious about it. But CO2 mitigation, so lowering the emissions from fossil fuel burning, is the main item. I'll give you an example of how large human impact is on the carbon cycle. So we see an annual cycle every year that CO2 is removed by plants, and especially in the Northern Hemisphere, it's, it's very pronounced seasonal cycle. Carbon dioxide is going down during the growing season because forests and grasslands and crops, they're all, you know, taking up CO2. Then that CO2 comes back in the non-growing season. So from the late fall to the early spring, it comes back. Now, the amplitude of that annual cycle in the Northern Hemisphere is on average about seven parts per million. Now, how much fossil fuel do we burn? The amount that we burn globally, annually, corresponds to 10 parts per million in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. So that is larger than all growing season net uptake by forests, crops, grasslands, marshes, everything. So it gives you an idea of the magnitude, and most people, I think, don't realize that. And that's why I'm saying that mitigation of fossil fuel emissions is the number one item on the agenda. I see. Well, I think that this will be really helpful to our listeners to hear this, to understand why it's important for us to act on this now. Yes. Okay, so sadly we've run out of time, Peter. Thank you so that was my interview with Dr. Peter Towns discussing the role of CO2 in climate change and what the future may bring to the atmosphere if we don't decrease emissions. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett. I also produced this week's show. Maeve Connor did her usual superb engineering. Additional contributions by Susan Moran. Thanks, Susan. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Martha and the Vandals. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.